Take your Bibles this evening, please, and turn to Jeremiah 4. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, there are some on the back table. To my right, your left, you can always certainly feel free to get a Bible. Last week, we were in the the majority, the second half or the second portion of Jeremiah chapter 3, and we recognized this message. And it was a message of, of, of backsliding, and then it was a message of repentance. It was a message of God saying, I will be merciful to you if you will repent. And then if you recall, it gave way to this prophetic utterance that God talks about the future, and he talks about the time when God will restore Israel, where God will be everything that he desires to be for them. But first, they must be right with him, that he's longing first to hear those words, Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills, from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel, right? He wants to hear that confession and that repentance. He wants to hear them confess that he is Lord. He wants to hear them turn, see them turn from their wicked ways and return unto him. And he says, when you do so, then I will be able to bless you. And what was really neat about that message, if you recall last week, was that... He was speaking not to Judah and Jerusalem, but to northern Israel, who had gone into captivity some 100 years prior. And that the the message was to this group of people. And that is just a a expression of God's great mercy and long suffering and longevity that though Israel had been gone for such a long time, that God still had his mind and his heart on them. Well, we pick up this week in Jeremiah chapter 4, and we ask this question, where is your heart? Reading in verses 1 and 2, the Bible says this, If thou wilt return, O Israel, saith the Lord, return unto me. And if thou wilt put away thine abominations out of thy sight, then shalt thou not remove. And thou shalt swear, the Lord liveth in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness, and the nation shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. So we pick up right, basically right where we left off in chapter 3. The theme continues in chapter 4, a definitive appeal by God to the will of the nation. Now we know that God is sovereign, but just as sure as the Lord is sovereign, so too it is that in God's sovereign power, he chooses to limit himself with respect to the choices of man. It does not challenge God's sovereignty to say that God allows for free will. It does not challenge God's sovereignty to say that God allows uh, us to make choices and to exercise our volition. Just like it doesn't challenge my sovereignty in my home. It doesn't challenge my authority as husband and father in my home to allow my wife and children to make decisions. I simply set the bounds within which those decisions are to be made. I allow them to make their decisions. If they cross those bounds, there's consequences. If they stay within those bounds, there's blessing. All uh, throughout the whole time, though, I maintain an authority over my home, though the individuals in my home have some measure of autonomy and volition as to what decisions they make and how those decisions play out. To that end, God says, if you are willing, if you will return, then return. If you're willing to return, then return. If you desire to return, then return. If you will put away your abominations, then you won't be removed anymore. Then you'll be restored. Let the elements of the character of God sink into your heart here. Let the reality that God is eager to bless sink into your heart, that He is eager to restore But here's the thing. He asks for our love by choice, not by force. He does not manipulate and compel our love. He asks for our love. He gives us every reason to accept Him and to to love Him. But He will not force us. God tells them if they will align themselves with the Lord, indicated by them swearing, the Lord liveth in truth and judgment and in righteousness, That's them aligning themselves with the Lord. Then the nation will be blessed in the Lord and will glory in the Lord. God desires to bless, but he can't bless those who rebel against him. And again, as a parent, this makes complete sense, right? I desire to bless my children. There are times where I have things in my mind, ways that I desire to bless my children. And then as we go throughout the day, my children act in a manner that is inconsistent with my will 
and my desires and I cannot bless them. I cannot give them what I desired to give them because they are walking in rebellion to me. My ability to bless them is generally dependent upon their actions. Now, I am sovereign in my home. I could bless them anyway, but what am I doing if I'm blessing them in their disobedience, right? If I'm confirming them in their rebellion. So I am constrained that if they behave, then I am to them a blessing. If they misbehave, then I am to my children a cursing, right? If, if my children do right, then I am to them a blessing. My, my children are blessed by their father. I love them and I desire to, to, to give them good things and I take care of them and I play with them and I do these things. But if they are in rebellion, then I am to them a cursing. Then they find in me someone who is going to resist them, who is going to chasten them, who is going to correct them as a loving father, the children in whom he is well pleased. But if I'm being a good parent... All of this is dependent upon their actions toward me. My desire to show them mercy and love. We continue to read in verses 3 and 4. Thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. So remember that, that chapter uh, verses 1 and 2, they were cleanup work with Israel, right? That was to Israel. Now he turns his mind toward Jerusalem and Judah. Thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground, sow not among thorns, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart. Ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. To align with the Lord, to find his blessing means to humble our hearts before the Lord and to set our wills in alignment with his own. God calls upon the men of Judah. He turns his mind back towards Judah after speaking to Israel in chapter 3 and then into the beginning of chapter 4. And he tells them, break up your fallow ground. Fallow ground it is, gro is ground that has been at rest, untilled. Typically speaking, if ground has been at rest for a little while, then it starts to kind of pack and harden and it gets... Uh, uh, um, it, it, it becomes unreceptive. When you till it, of course, it loosens up the earth. It allows oxygen to get into the soil. And as you till it, it becomes far more suited for growing and for bearing fruit. I can throw seeds into untilled ground and there might be some growth. But if I till the ground, if I prepare the ground, if I break up the fallow ground, then the ground is now far more ready and far more uh, um, receptive to growth to bearing fruit. So God says, till the soil of your heart. Take your heart, which has been rest at rest, which has not been tilled, which has not been grown, which has not borne fruit, and now till it. Stir it up. Stir up within you some, some vibrancy to obey the Lord. Stir yourself up unto obedience. Break up your fallow ground and be receptive to the word of God. And if you break up your fallow ground and be receptive to the word of God, then it will grow in you. It will land and it will, it will, it will, will, will begin to germinate and it will grow and it will bear fruit. God then uses a second picture here. So first he says, stir within you the ambition to follow the Lord. And he uses this idea of tilling the ground. Then he uses the picture of circumcision. The rite of circumcision was a rite for infant men in Israel on the eighth day, infant boys. On the eighth day, they would be circumcised. It was, in, in one sense, it was, it was two things. In one sense, it was kind of like a baby dedication. It was the idea that they were consecrating this child unto the Lord, that he was one of, uh, um, of the nation of Israel, that he was one of the, uh, uh, God's inheritance, that he was a, a child of Israel. It was an outward act of consecration of the child to the Lord and aligning him with the national covenant of Israel. But it was far more than just a memorial, right? It was a legal and religious act which would determine the rights of that child within the nation. A child who was uncircumcised in Israel would be cast out of the nation, removed from blessing, completely uh, neglected. He effectively was not a citizen in Israel if he was not circumcised. He had no part with God and he had no part with the nation. 
if he was uncircumcised. But here God is not telling them to circumcise their bodies. He uses rather the picture of circumcision to call them unto an, a spiritual consecration that they would circumcise their hearts. Now again, it's not that you take a blade and do anything to your heart. That's not the idea here. The idea, metaphorically, is that as physical circumcision aligned the child with the legal and spiritual promises to the nation of Israel, God was calling upon them to position their hearts, to align their hearts, to circumcise their hearts through repentance and thus align with God and find, and find the spiritual blessings. This is not a new concept to Israel in that day. God's message that they would circumcise their hearts is a message that went all the way back to the first days, the first generations of Israel, back to their wilderness wanderings. We read all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 16. The Bible says, and now, Israel, what doth the Lord require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also with all that therein is. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them. And he chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as it is this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your hearts and be no more stiff-necked. So even way back in Deuteronomy chapter 10, right? This is Moses' this is Moses's final sermon. Moses knows he's going to die, so he gives them Deuteronomy as a rehash of the things that God has taught them through the wilderness wanderings, as a rehash of the promises that God has made to them, of the faithfulness that God has had to them. And within this, Moses says, what does the Lord require of you? It is this, to love God. Just love Him. Circumcise your hearts. What does it mean to circumcise your hearts? Well, that's what we saw in, in, in verse 12. Fear the Lord thy God. Walk in all His ways. Love Him. Serve the Lord thy God. Align yourself with God. Circumcise your hearts. Stop being so stiff-necked. Stop being so stubborn. Right? That's the idea. Stop being so stubborn and start submitting. Stubbornness is a real problem in humanity. It's a human problem. Some people are more stubborn than others. I have a couple of children that are more stubborn than my other children. But... Stubbornness is a human problem. And there's nothing more freeing than yielding. There's nothing more liberating than submission. It's an interesting idea. I plan to preach a whole sermon on it during our family series, which is coming up later on this year. But if you truly want to feel the liberty that is in God, the joy of God, it comes through submission, through yielding through finally just giving up, letting the Lord win. That's what God is asking them to do here. Give up. Not in the sense that you know what's good for you and I'm asking you for things that, that aren't good for you. The, the, the wonderful thing about God is that when you give up, you win. <laughs> Can I put it that way? When you finally submit, when you finally yield, when you finally give it all to God, you win. That's when God can pour out His blessings upon you. That's when there can be true peace and joy and contentment. But we get this idea that, that what we want is what we want and what we want is best for us. And so we hang on to things. And we, we, we hold tight to them and we say, no, this is mine, this is my area. God, you can't have this one. And God cries out and He says, break up your fallow ground. Just listen and then the Word of God will fall and it will, bear, it, it, it will root and it will bear fruit and, and, and there will be a joy, there will be a peace, there will be a blessing that you didn't even know existed. But faith always precedes blessing, right? You've got to submit before you'll ever find it. You won't even know what you're missing until you get there and you realize what you didn't have. So God has promised them these things. The nation lived with an uncircumcised heart, even here in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Their hearts were far from the Lord. 
One more thing I want to say about this here in Deuteronomy before we move on. Deuteronomy 10, excuse me, not 12. God has promised that there's coming a day when the nation of Israel will turn to the Lord. We've talked, we talked about this a little bit last week. Romans chapter 11, so all Israel shall be saved. When God will circumcise their hearts and so he will be able to pour out the blessings he desired to give. And we don't just read about this in Romans 11. We actually read about this in Deuteronomy as well. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 5 and 6, God says this, The Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it. And he will, bring thee go- uh, he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. It's interesting because the promises of Deuteronomy 30 are actually after God saying, if you, if you obey me, I'll bless you. And then he says, these are the cursings, if you disobey me. And then at the beginning of Deuteronomy 30, he says, and after all these cursings come upon you, as if God is taking for granted the fact that, that Israel is going to push God so far to the limits that God is going to have to give every single cursing in the book to them. And then God says, and after all of these cursings do come upon you, because they're stubborn and stiff-necked and everything, then he says, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to call you back to the land, and I'm going to gather you back, and then I'm going to circumcise your heart and circumcise the hearts of your children. And this is what we read about in Romans chapter 11, where Paul says that all Israel shall be saved, that the restoration of Israel will be the riches of the world, as we talked about in, in uh, Jeremiah, I believe it was, was last week, right? Now, take note that what we read about here in Deuteronomy 35 and 6 has yet to happen in recorded history. That there will be this possession and this multiplication and this drawing back to the land and a wholesale circumcision of the hearts of the nation to the Lord. We won't see it indeed until the end of the 70th week of Daniel. The call has, however, always been upon the ears of the people. And this is the point. That God has always had this call, that they would circumcise their hearts. He's always had it in the ears of the people. Back in Deuteronomy 10, here in Jeremiah 4, we see it in Ezekiel as well. We see it in Isaiah as well. And the reason why the call is always going out, that they should submit to the Lord willingly so that they can avoid the chastening hand of the Lord, is because they simply do not obey. God says his fury will come forth like fire and burn everything and everyone. He says, if you do not obey, my fury will come forth like fire. I will pour my fury upon you. And notice the reason. Not because God is some cruel, heartless, angry God, but rather because of the people's evil. If only they would obey, they wouldn't have to go through it. But they won't obey. Verses 5 through 7. Declare ye in Judah and publish in Jerusalem and say, Blow ye the trumpet in the land, cry, gather together and say, Assemble yourselves and let us go into the defense cities. Set up the standard toward Zion, retire, stay not, for I will bring evil from the north and a great destruction. The lion has come up from his thicket and the destroyer of Gentiles is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make thy land desolate, and thy cities shall be laid waste without an inhabitant. So God calls for them to circumcise their hearts, but he knows they will not. And so he says, declare these things in Judah. Prepare yourself to be besieged. Flee for your lives from this region because the destroyer is coming. The destroyer from the north Uh, that's bringing a great destruction. We know this to be Babylon. We'll see it's Babylon later on in Jeremiah. We know it from Ezekiel. We know it from Daniel, right? We know it from history that Babylon overthrew Israel beginning in 605 B.C. and then again in 597 B.C. and then in 586 B.C. There were three different deportations. Babylon coming, and they'd come from the north. They don't go across that desert. They go up, they follow the, the Euphrates, Tigris and Euphrates rivers because they've got big armies and they can't go across the desert with big armies. It just doesn't work that way, right? You go up and you follow the rivers and then you get to the area of Syria and then you come down from the north. And that's how you would come. So there's these great armies that are coming from the north and they're going to destroy. He likens them to a lion from a thicket. 
right? If you've ever seen uh, female lions as they hunt, they, they stalk in the tall grasses and they wait in the tall grasses until they find their moment and then they burst forth and they just come upon their prey. Poised to destroy. He says Babylon is poised and ready. They've stalked their prey. They're poised to destroy. So would be the enemy from the north, the nation of Babylon. They would come and they would destroy the nation and they're poised to do it. They are prepping to do it even now to lay these cities to waste that they'll be without inhabitant. This is quite a message. Israel hearing Jeremiah say, the nation of Judah hearing Jeremiah say, these cities will be wasted and desolate. That hasn't happened in generations. I mean, that has not happened really since well before Israel was in the land. That, that, that region had always been populated. Continuing in verses 8 and 9. For this gird you with sackcloth, lament and howl, for the fierce anger of the Lord is not turned back from us. And it shall come to pass at that day, saith the Lord, that the heart of the king shall perish, the heart of the princes and the priests shall be astonished, and the prophets shall wonder. God says effectively that if the nation knew what was good for them, these declarations would cause them to lament, to howl, to mourn, cause them to put on sackcloth and ashes. We might liken this to the response of Nineveh in the days of Jonah, right? Where Jonah came and said, in 40 days the Lord's going to destroy the city. And they rent their clothes and they put on sackcloth and they put ashes on their heads and they put ashes on the heads of their animals. They did everything they could to show repentance unto the Lord. God says, if you knew what was good for you, if you knew what was coming, if you had any belief that I mean what I say, you would do this today. In that day, the heart of even the greatest among them, God says, would shudder. That the heart of the king would perish. That the king would see what is about to happen. That he'd see the armies of Babylon. That he'd see that these things are actually going to happen. And his heart would perish, would faint. That he would, he would have no more strength within him. But not only the heart of the king would perish, but the princes and the priests would be astonished. The prophets would wonder. The princes and the priests, they'd say, well, the priests would say, well, wait a minute. Here I've been teaching them we're going to be okay. And all of these false prophets who've been prophesying that everything's going to be okay and that God is not going to destroy His people. On that day, they're all going to be astonished. God says they don't even know what's coming. There's a sorrowful irony that the thing unto which the nation is called is a response, as I mentioned, that reflects the response of Nineveh some 200 years earlier. If only the nation whose God is the Lord would hear the warning of the prophet and repent in sackcloth and ashes... If only the nation that prides itself in the law of Moses would flee to God as an evil and pagan nation who would eventually take northern Israel into captivity had done uh, two centuries prior. The Assyrians were one of the most evil, pagan, wicked, and brutal nations ever. But when they heard the word of the Lord, they repented. And yet here's Judah, the city of David, the city of the great kings, and they hear the same warnings. And they, would, they don't repent. They won't listen. They won't humble themselves. What a condemnation of these people in this day. You know, they say that familiarity breeds contempt. All too often as humans, we take for granted those things which are nearest to us. I don't know if you've ever been in one of those situations where you found yourself complaining about things and then you go somewhere else and you realize just how good you have it. That sometimes familiarity in and of itself can kind of breed a, a discontent or a contempt for things. Uh, sometimes you don't know how good of a spouse you have until you see people that actually don't have good spouses. Or you don't know how good of a situation you have materially until you see people that are truly in lack. And yet you find yourself complaining about the things that you have or don't have because familiarity breeds contempt. We find ourselves complaining about the nation that we live in even though we live in the freest nation that's really ever been, right? Why? Because familiarity breeds contempt. All, uh, that, that, that we complain about all these things, but if you go other places in the world, you know, they don't have the freedoms we have. You know, the freedom of speech is not enshrined in the document of any nation but the United States of America and perhaps the Republic of Palau who completely... Uh, um, modeled all of their documents after the United States of America. 
very rare thing, the, the idea that you actually have a right to freedom of speech in a nation. You know they don't have that in Canada. You know they don't have that in Europe. That's not a freedom they have there. The government may allow it, but it's only because the government is allowing it. But familiarity breeds contempt, doesn't it? You kind of lose sight of what you have. So it was with the nation of Israel. It's almost as if God was so close to them that they couldn't really see him anymore. God was so close to them that they took him for granted. We can even do this in our own lives, and we'll talk about that more later. They assumed upon God's mercy because of how close their relationship was to him, because they were his covenant people. Familiarity, to some degree, bred contempt. Well, all of these statements and warnings, they provoke a response from Jeremiah himself. In verse 10, we see Jeremiah. And he says this, Then said I, Ah, Lord God, surely thou hast greatly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying, Ye shall have peace, whereas the sword reacheth unto the soul. Jeremiah is a little bit bewildered here. He says, God, have you deceived the people? Have you deceived Judah? Have you deceived Jerusalem? When you have preached to them peace, when you have preached to them restoration, when you have preached to them the kingdom, are you going to make an end of your people? But there's no deception here. As a matter of fact, as we've mentioned already, this is more of a promise kept, isn't it? We read a few moments ago of God's prophetic promise in Deuteronomy 30 that God would restore the nation and He would circumcise their hearts and the hearts of their children when they returned to Him wholesale. But just prior to that promise, I mentioned that there were blessings and cursings, right? Deuteronomy chapter 29, beginning in verse 19, we read this. God speaking to Israel, And it shall come to pass, when he heareth the words of this curse, that he bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imaginations of mine heart, to add drunkenness to thirst. So God's saying there's a scenario here. He'd just given a bunch of curses. And he says there's a scenario here where the people that hear the words of this curse hear that I will tell them that I will curse them and destroy them. They're going to hear these things and they're going to bless their own hearts. And they're going to say, no, those curses aren't for me. I'm going to have peace. I'm going to be okay. And as a matter of fact, on top of that, let's just add a little drunkenness to the mix, right? Let's, let's, let's add a little bit of extra rebellion because I'm going to be okay here. No, God, those curses aren't for me. I'll, I'll, I'll just bless my heart. I'll just be okay here. Verse 20. The Lord will not spare him. But then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man. And all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him. And the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord shall separate him unto evil out of all the tribes of Israel, according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law. So that the generation to come of your children shall rise up after you, and the stranger that shall come from a far land shall say, when they see the plagues of that land, and the sickness which the Lord hath laid upon it, and that whole land thereof is brimstone and salt and burning that is not sown, nor beareth, nor any grass groweth therein, like an overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. Woo! Right? There's coming a day, God says, when you're going to hear all of these cursings. This is in Deuteronomy 29. This is Moses speaking to the people before they've entered the promised land. God says, there's going to come a day where you're going to hear all of these cursings and you're going to say, nah, not for me. And then I'm going to blast you. It's basically what God says, right? The smoke is going to rise up from the ashes of your cities. I'm going to destroy you. Exactly what God says here in chapter 4. He says, my fury and my vengeance and my fire will fall upon you, right? This is God keeping his promises. This is God being faithful. Jeremiah says, God, have you, have you greatly deceived this people, Jerusalem and Judah? Have you deceived them, saying you shall have peace when the sword reacheth unto the soul? No. Quite the opposite. God has not deceived them at all. God told them this would happen if they would act this way. God's just being faithful. God's just bringing about what He promised He would do. Verses 11 through 13. 
At that time shall it be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a dry wind of the high places in the wilderness toward the daughter of my people, not to fan nor to cleanse. Even a full wind from those places shall come unto me. Now also will I give sentence unto them. Behold, he shall come up as clouds, and his chariots shall be as a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe unto us, for we are spoiled. God again likens his judgment to a scorching wind, not the kind of wind which is intended to fan for coolness, not the kind of wind when it's a hot day out at the lake and then you get that breeze and you're like, ah, that's nice. Not, right, not, not that kind of wind. Not the kind of wind that blows refuse away. Not the kind of wind where after you're mowing and, and, and then, you don't, and then you, you, you're, you're thinking, okay, now I've got to get out the blower and blow all that grass off of my, off of my driveway. And then you walk out there and it was a breezy day and the, and, and the wind took all the grass away and you say, God bless that wind. Now I don't have to blow it or sweep it, right? Praise the Lord for that. Not that kind of a wind. Not the kind of wind that cools you. Not the kind of wind that blows away refuse. This is the kind of wind which it's a hot day and then a hot wind blows by and it dries out your lips and it dries out your eyes and it cracks your skin and you say, oh, this awful hot wind, right? That kind of a wind. God says, I'm that for you. I'm going to dry you right out. The chariots of the enemy of the people are going to come and destroy them. And so God again cries against them, verses 14 through 18. O Jerusalem, wash thine heart from wickedness, that thou mayest be saved. How long shall thy vain thoughts lodge within thee? For a voice declareth from Dan and publisheth affliction from Mount Ephraim. Make ye mention to the nations, behold, publish against Jerusalem that watchers come from a far country to give out their voice against the cities of Judah. Keepers of the fields, are they against her round about? Because she hath been rebellious against me, saith the Lord. Thy way and thy doings have procured these things unto thee. This is thy wickedness, because it is bitter, because it reacheth unto thy heart. So God again calls for them to return. God again calls for them to wash their hearts from the wickedness and to be saved. And he asks them, he says, how long will these vain thoughts lodge within you? How long are these vain thoughts going to be within you? The idea that you won't be judged. The idea that you can be saved. The idea that, that you won't, that, 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 that your salvation will come from anything other than repentance. When will you wake up to reality? How long will they maintain these foolish ideas that they can do things their own way without facing consequences? God says that the voice declares it from Dan to Ephraim. The idea here. Dan was the northernmost tribe, not by God's establishment, but Dan moved themselves up north. So Dan was the northernmost tribe in, in Israel. And after Judah separated from Israel, and you had the northern ten tribes, and then you had the southern two tribes, Judah and Israel. In Israel, the northernmost tip of Israel was the tribe of Dan. And the southernmost tip of Israel was the tribe of Ephraim. So you had Dan to the north, and you had Ephraim to the south. God says, all of Israel, from all the way north to Dan and all the way south to Ephraim, can testify that you want to repent. That you don't want to maintain your rebellion. In other words, he's saying, Israel is, the fact that Israel is in captivity and was destroyed, and their people were destroyed, and their children were killed, this is a testimony to you that you should repent. Don't follow the same path. How foolish is it for Judah to see the path that Israel has been on and to say, nope, that's not going to be us. We'll just stay on the same path, but we'll have a different end. How foolish is it for us to maintain a heart of rebellion and to say, yeah, it happened in Israel. Yeah, it happened in Judah. Yeah, it happens everywhere, but it's not going to happen to me. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm just going to keep living in sin. I'm just going to maintain a heart of stubborn rebellion. But that's okay. God's not going to do anything. God, God, no, not me. God says that the voice declares from Dan to Ephraim. Finally, in verse 18, God says that they will have no one to blame but themselves for their judgment. Right? God is answering Jeremiah here. Jeremiah says, God, have you deceived the people? God says, the people have no one to blame but themselves. They're, I am not doing this to them. Their wickedness has done this to them. When my children face consequences for their actions, one of the things that we walk through is we walk through what brought about these. Did you choose to, did, did you know what was right? Yes. Did you know what was wrong? Yes. Did you choose to do wrong? Yes. 
then who's choosing to get consequences for that action? Is it really daddy giving you consequences or is it you giving yourself consequences, right? I mean, genuinely speaking, if dad is only going to give you negative consequences, if you do wrong and you know what is right and you know what is wrong, then if you get negative consequences, it's because you chose to do wrong, which means you chose to get the negative consequences. This is the same concept here that God is using. Your wickedness, because it is bitter, because it reaches to your heart, has procured these consequences for you. But he says that their bitterness has reached to their heart. There's a sourness within them. There's a corruption within them. And God says, it's not just an external taint. It's all the way to your heart. To this end, they don't see it. They love their sin too much. Now, beginning in verse 19, the perspective changes. There's some debate among interpreters about who is speaking here. Some believe the words are, are the words of the nation of Israel, as it were. Others, and I believe this as well, believe that Jeremiah is writing these words. We already saw Jeremiah say to God, God, are, have you deceived the nation? And then God responds to Jeremiah saying, no, they've brought this wickedness upon themselves. And I believe Jeremiah again responds here in verses 19 through 21. My bowels, my bowels, I am pained at my very heart. My heart maketh a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because thou hast heard, O my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Destruction upon destruction is cried, for the whole land is spoiled. Suddenly are my tents spoiled, my curtains in a moment. How long shall I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? In Hebrew culture, the bowels, which would literally be your intestines, right? The bowels were considered the seat of emotions. If you've ever had that sort of that feeling where when you're very emotionally overwrought or emotionally whatever you want to, whatever word you want to use, stretched emotionally that there's like that pit in your stomach or there's just kind of a, a feeling of uh, your stomach just doesn't feel right. That's kind of the idea here. So they considered the bowels to be the seat of, of emotion. So Jeremiah is stating here that he's deeply emotionally grieved and moved. He states that he's pained to his very heart. Pained because he's heard the sound of the trumpet. He is the prophet of God, knows that this is coming. He knows that the trumpet of war is coming, the alarm of war. He has heard. Maybe, he, maybe the Lord has actually given him a vision. Or maybe this is just him as he hears the words of the Lord living this out. That he, he sees the destruction coming upon his people. He sees that the tents of his people are spoiled. He sees the standard. That would be the, the bearer, the flag of, uh, of Babylon. He sees the standard. He hears the sound of the trumpet and he says, I know this is coming. And he's so deeply troubled by this. And it would appear that the Lord again speaks in verses 22 through 26. We read this. He says, My people is foolish. They have not known me. They are sottish children. They have none understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void. And the heavens, and they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled. And all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of heaven were fled. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord and by His fierce anger. God says, My people are foolish. They have not known Me. See, they have an opportunity to know God in a manner deeper than any other people. They have the law of God. They have the prophets of God. They have the priests of God. They have the kings of the line of David but they lack understanding. They're wise to evil, but they understand nothing of the good. And then God says, He saw the earth without form and void. He's seen that. God was there when the earth was without form and void. He says, He saw the heavens when the heavens had no light. He was there before He said, Let there be light, and there was light. He beheld the mountains as they moved in their places. God formed them. He's seen the nations desolate, possibly thinking back to the days of the flood. Possibly looking forward to when Judah will be no more. 
This is the God of all flesh. And if these people had any sense at all, they would say, I'm this and God is this. I live for 70 years, 80 years, 90 years. God is eternal. I can make a few things. God made everything. I have control over a few things in life. God has control over everything. I know so little. God knows so much. If we truly believe that God is in the heavens, if we truly believe that He created all things, if we truly believe that He was there when, when, when things were without form and void, if we truly believe that the heavens and the heavens of heavens were created by Him, if we truly believe that He spoke light into existence, if we truly believe that He moved the mountains on their foundations, then what are we doing thinking we know better than Him? Isn't that silly? What are we doing thinking we know better than Him? That's the idea here. But God says they're foolish children. He uses the word, well, in the translation, we have the word sottish. They are sottish children. That word sottish in the English literally means dull or stupid or senseless. He calls them foolish. He calls them absolutely senseless. He says this is senseless. And it is, isn't it? They lack understanding. Verses 27 to 29. For thus hath the Lord said, the whole land shall be desolate. Ah, take a look at this next phrase. Yet will I not make a full end. He's going to use it once in chapter 4, twice in chapter 5, again a couple of times in, toward the end of the book. I love that phrase. Yet will I not make a full end. Verse 28, For this shall the earth mourn, and the heavens above be black, because I have spoken it, I have purposed it, and will not repent, neither will I turn back from it. The whole city shall flee for the noise of the horsemen and bowmen. They shall go into thickets and climb up upon the rocks. Every city shall be forsaken, and not a man dwell therein. To this end, God says, The whole land will be desolate. The whole earth will mourn. The heavens will be black. He will purpose destruction upon them upon whom he desires to purpose blessing. The city will be overthrown, but never lose sight of the end of chapter 20, of verse 27. Yet will I not make a full end. God says, I'm going to judge them, but I will not end them completely. This is his mercy. This is his love. This is his faithfulness. These are his promises. The, the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Romans chapter 11. God will be faithful to his people. He has not forgotten mercy. We finish the chapter in verses 30 and 31. God says, And when thou art spoiled, what wilt thou do? Though thou closest thyself with crimson, though thou deckest thee with ornaments of gold, though thou rentest thy face with painting, in vain shalt thou make thyself fair. Thy lovers will despise thee. They will seek thy life. For I have heard a voice as of a woman in travail and the anguish as of her that bringeth forth her first child. The voice of the daughter of Zion that bewaileth herself, that spreadeth her hand, saying, Woe is me now, for my soul is wearied because of murderers. God says, What good will all of your vanity do? Your pomp do, your riches do, your lavish dressings do. What good will any of it do when you, be when you are destroyed? What, what, one of the things, the characteristics that we find of the very material nation that we live in is that our materialistic culture is attempting to hide and disguise their moral bankruptcy with lavishness, right? They buy their things, they buy their boats and their cars and their houses and their electronics and they, they, they have all of their clothes and they have all of their wealth and their riches and their travel and they're attempting, they're using all of that to disguise the bankruptcy of purpose and morality in their lives. The fact that there's so little of value there. God says you can deck yourself in crimson and you can have all of the ornaments of gold jewelry, right? You can wear beautiful red garments and you can have all of the jewelry and you can paint your face. That's the idea of putting on makeup because he's likening Judah here to a woman. And you can, but, but it's not going to make you pretty. It's not going to make you pretty, God says. Your lovers will still despise you because you'll be destroyed. And then he gives a final statement. Instead of the nation rejoicing in their God, 
The Lord foresees the nation bewailing her sorrows because the land is corrupted, full of evil, full of murderers, that they will say, woe is me now because of murderers. In this final statement, we are again reminded of the reason why God's mind is so set upon Judah's destruction. They've allowed the land to be corrupted with false gods and the people are corrupted. The extent to which, as we've mentioned, they cause their children to pass through the fire, to murder their own children, the innocent children. They shed innocent blood in the name of false gods. The land is corrupted because of murderers. And this ends Jeremiah 4. We'll pick up there next week in Jeremiah 5. We're going to apply this evening. There are many noteworthy principles which we can draw from Jeremiah 4. I only want to consider two. And believe me, that was hard. Principle number one. Live like your choices matter. I, I know that this may sound... I mean, we've said this in so many ways and so many times, but this is really is the point. It's been a little while now since we've slowed down to remember the simple truth that choices have consequences. There was a time where that was coming up seemingly every week for a while. Choices have consequences. In the words of the book itself, we reap what we sow. In the natural world, this principle functions without question, right? When I plant a tomato seed, I expect nothing to grow but a tomato. If anything is going to grow at all, which is debatable, I expect it to be a tomato. I do not expect a potato to pop off of that tomato plant. I have never seen a watermelon come off of a tomato plant. I reap what I sow. I plant tomatoes, I get tomatoes. Now, obviously, there's crossbreeding, tomato, uh, watermelon, cantaloupe, right? You can have cantermelon and those sorts of things because they're in the same family. But the fact of the matter is, you reap what you sow. This is an unavoidable principle in the world, right? It's, it's obvious. But we have a severe disconnect in the human life with this principle as it relates to the metaphysical world. In the physical world, this makes perfect sense. We have no problem. Action, reaction, right? I push something, it's going to move. Equal and opposite reaction. I mean, these are even the laws of physics, right? But in the meta metaphysical world, we, we really struggle with this idea because we see evil people prospering, don't we? We see good people suffering, don't we? But that doesn't mean the principle's not in play. Often these evil people who materially prosper are living in spiritual, emotional pit of sorrow and despair. Often the good people who are suffering materially are yet living in spiritual and emotional delight. Deeper still, the promises of God and the blessings of the spiritual are unable to be quantified. They're, they're unquantifiable. And it is for this reason that we must walk by faith and not by sight. And this is the call that I seek to renew in your hearts this evening. Break up your fallow ground. Break up the fallow ground of your heart. Walk by faith and not by sight. And from this, let's draw more parallels to the text. Religion tells me that what truly matters is what I do. Not what I think, not what I want, but what I do. Religion tells me that life is judged by my actions, my intention, not my intentions or desires. But Jesus had a different priority. Matthew chapter 15, verses 3 through 11. But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift by whatsoever that might be profited by me. And honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Ye hypocrites, well did Esaias, Isaiah, prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand, not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. God reminds us that God only wants our actions as an extension of our intentions. He wants our compliance as an extension of our heart of love to him. Pastor, what does this have to do with choices and consequences? Well, it has to do with the deepest standard upon which God calls men the circumcision of their hearts. 
to reject the idea that we are going to somehow become outside-in followers of God. That somehow, because you're looking on the outside as if things are going okay, that that means that you're good. We can fool ourselves into thinking this. We can fool ourselves into living this way. That we comply to some outward set of principles, and so we're okay. Rather, we need to place our loyalty upon a deeper law. That we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our souls and all of our might. But there's another point of consideration within this broader topic of choices and consequences. Choices and consequences is an absolute principle. Never expect that God's blessing will come out of rebellion. Can't happen. Does not happen. Never expect that God's best will come out of disobedience. It cannot happen. It does not happen. We reap what we sow. Where fruit is born in a life or in a family or in a church, that fruit is born out of good seed being planted. What goes in will come out. Where we invest is where we benefit. Don't think that you can fill your head with rebellion, violence, selfishness, and any other number of fleshly principles, whether it be through music or through video or through any other means, without reaping something in your life. Don't think that just because you know the principles of the Bible that this will shield you if you're planting into your life the principles of the world. Judah understood the principles of the Bible. But they were planting into their nation the principles of the world. Judah understood the principles of the Bible. They understood the principles of the law. They understood the expectations of the law to some degree. But they were planting into their lives the principles of the world around them into paganism. And they were not going to reap the goodness of God just because they knew things about God. They were not going to reap the goodness of God just because they understood things about His law. They were going to reap the judgment of God because within them was rebellion. Because what they had actually planted into their lives, along with all that head knowledge, they planted into their lives sin, evil, the flesh, and that's what they would reap. Judah knew things about God, but they didn't know God. And to this point... I want Psalm 106 to become our teacher. I'm going to read 15 verses here of Psalm 106. The Bible says this, Praise ye the Lord, O give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can show forth all His praise? Blessed are they that keep judgment, and he that doeth righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor that thou bearest unto thy people. O visit me with thy salvation, that I may see the good of thy chosen, that I may rejoice in the gladness of thy nation, that I may glory with thine inheritance. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his power known, uh, mighty power to be known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it was dried up. So he led them through the depths, as through the wilderness, and he saved them from the hand of him that hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. And the waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then believed they his words. They sang his praise. They soon forget his works. They waited not for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but he sent leanness unto their soul. Bible says that God, they, they, they requested of God. God delivered them from the Red Sea. He brought them through the Red Sea. They were amazed by this. They believed His words. They sang His praises. We can read about the Song of Moses, the Song of Miriam. But then they started lusting. They didn't wait on God 
They got selfish again. They forgot his goodness. They forgot his love for them. They forgot his holiness. They forgot his power. They lusted in the wilderness. They tempted God. And the Bible says God gave them what they lusted for. In this case, it was meat in the wilderness. But while their bodies were well fed, he sent leanness into their souls. Their souls were starved. Their souls became emaciated. That choice that you're making, that you want to make, it may bring some physical advantage, but here's the thing. If it's not of God, it may bring some measure of fun, it may bring some measure of, of advantage materially, but if it's not of God... You're exchanging the fatness of the body for the leanness of your soul. That's not a worthy exchange. See, because you do reap what you sow. What comes in must come out. If we believe the unseen, if we believe in the spirit realm, if we understand the things of the spirit of God to be just as real as the, as the things which we feel and the things which we see and when the things which we hear and the things which we taste... If we understand that God did create all that is, that He is the Creator God, the authority over all that is, then we can and in fact we must understand that the spiritual choices that we make bear out spiritual consequences. And we can exchange physical and material wants for spiritual and emotional deadness. Know that your choices matter. Know that there's no getting around the principle and know that we do reap what we sow. Point number two, as we hasten on. Guard familiarity against contempt. First point, live like your choices matter. Second, guard familiarity against contempt. We here are Christians. At least most of us are. Some of us are second generation Christians. Some of us are third generation Christians. Some of us have been saved for decades now. Some of us know the Bible pretty well. You read it. You memorize it. You have it in your houses, on your walls. You listen to messages where teachers teach it. You listen to music that has scripture in it. You listen to preachers preach it. We spoke from our passage about this idea, this danger, that familiarity can breed contempt. That God can become so familiar to you that he becomes common to you. And that which becomes common can easily become trite. May I just encourage you to guard yourself against this tendency. Not everyone can live 24 hours a day, 365 days a year with just this zeal, right? That just gets exhausting. But... Be careful that God, that the things of God, that the choices that you've made for God, that the, that the reason why you made them, that your passion to attend church, that your passion to do what you do and not do what you don't do, that what you listen to and what you watch and what you don't listen to and what you don't watch and what you say and what you don't say and where you go and where you don't go, that all of these things that you do and when you read your Bible and how you read your Bible and why you read your Bible and how often you pray and why you pray and how long you pray and all of these things, be careful that your familiarity doesn't breed contempt, that you don't get so, and I don't mean close to God relationally, but I, what I mean is that you don't become so filled with the things of God that you, that, that, that you start to overlook him, that he just becomes another thing that you, you, you put on in the day because it's just what you do, not really because it's who you are. And this can be a danger that God becomes what we do rather than who we are. Don't allow that to happen. Don't allow your familiarity to breed within you this triteness, this commonness, to make God common. God is not common. God is a great king. God is holy and righteous and the creator of all that is. Don't allow him to become common. Don't allow him just to become what you do. Make sure he's what you are. God is our loving father, but he is a great king. Let's treat him as such.
So the question that we asked in our sermon title is this, where is your heart? How are you doing this evening? Are you living like your choices matter or is your heart kind of fallow? Hasn't really been stirred up for a while. It's just kind of going through the motions. God has maybe become a little bit common. Things are just kind of what they are. Old failures become new failures. Old victories become distant memories. How's your heart? Do you need to break up your fallow ground a little bit? Would you talk to the Lord this evening and ask Him to help you break up some of that, till up the ground, make it fertile again for the Lord to do His work? Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.